0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvini. Coming up on today's programme... France's prime minister quits after seeing through a controversial immigration bill.
1: Majorité 268 pour 349 contre 186, l'Assemblée nationale a adopté.
0: We'll get the latest on her replacement, the youngest ever prime minister in the Fifth Republic's history. Boeing flies into more trouble as its stock price crashes. The Maldives' new president visits China as the island nation tries to break free of Indian influence plus the latest on North Korea's succession plans and a roundup of the Italian papers with Isabella Jewell.
2: We'll be touching on the fallout after a massive demonstration of neo-fascists in Rome, why a Vatican official is calling for marriage rights for priests and the launch of the Piti Warmore trade fair in Florence.
0: All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. France's Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, is set to leave office less than two years into her job. Her resignation announcement comes in advance of an anticipated government reshuffle by President Macron ahead of European elections later this year. Florence Biedemont is a political analyst and former news editor for the French agency Agence France-Presse. Florence, thank you for joining us. Firstly, why has Elizabeth Bourne gone now? Was she jumped before being pushed?
3: Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, she has been fired. Let, let's say to open it. It's not just that she resigned. In her letter of resignation, she she hinted very clearly and with a certain bitterness that uh, she was asked to to resign. So why? I mean, she has been in power since something like two years, and uh, she was very useful for Emmanuel Macron because uh, since he lost his uh, majority in uh, uh, in the National Assembly after the election that followed his. Uh, uh, being elected president, uh, Elisabeth Bourne had a very difficult job, you know, to pass reforms that uh, have been very unpopular, uh, the pension reform, for example. Uh, and without a majority, she had to use um, uh, a law in France that allows the prime minister to do so without a vote in parliament. Of course, this is not a, a very democratic and very popular way of passing laws, so the pension reform was still adopted. And then uh, it was mentioned like in your lunch, like the immigration law, the immigration law. She had to negotiate uh, with the right and, and the left. They, they both refused to vote it until there was a, a compromise that was made with the right. And uh, eventually this bill, this law looks like very, very close to uh, what the extreme right wanted on immigration.
0: And what was her personal relationship like with President Macron?
3: Uh, it was not very warm. I mean, uh, and especially in the in the last times, uh, I think what, what Macron uh, didn't like is the fact that she couldn't build any majority in parliament. But is it possible to do so? I mean, this is what we will see with the with her successor, the young Gabrielle Attal.
0: Mm, I was just about to turn to that. The uh, education minister Gabrielle Attal has now been announced as her replacement. What do you make of that choice?
3: It's a good choice. I mean, uh, for Macron, in the sense that uh, Attal is young, uh, dynamic, I think Macron absolutely needs to relaunch his presidency um, because uh, Elizabeth Bourne was not popular because uh, the last bills, as I said, were adopted without really uh, a large support. Uh, And in uh, the the election, the European elections are coming in June. And this is a, a very important moment, of course, for him. Europe being pro-European and the building of Europe has always been one of his very important topics. So how his party fares in this election is is something really meaningful for him. And so far in the polls, I mean, the first party, the one with 30 percent of the vote compared with Macron's Renaissance Party, 20 percent, is the extreme right party uh, of Marine Le Pen, uh, Rassemblement National, uh, so that's something, you know, that he's trying uh, to, to counter. And I think one of his big fears is that uh, as a legacy, you know, he, he paves the way for the extreme right to, to come in power.
0: Gabriel Attal is only 34 years old. He's openly gay in a civil partnership and he's Jewish. I mean, that is quite a, a combination for the prime minister of the country. How is it going down?
3: Well, he doesn't claim or represent himself as a Jew. I just must... A bit, uh, uh, the Jewish heritage, because uh, he's, he's had anti-Semitic abuse in the past. His yes. mother is the Greek Orthodox. So, you know, this is not something that he has uh, put forward so far. But as you said, yes, he's the youngest, he's openly gay, which is also quite a change. Uh, So obviously, uh, Macron, in his uh, announcement of uh, uh, nominating him, said he was relying on his energy. Uh, He said, let's go back, like, let's be bold, please be bold, let's go back to the fundamentals of the 2017s, which means, you know, this kind of enthusiasm and uh, kind of... Uh, novelty that was when he was first elected president, and that's what he's uh, desperately looking for. So, in this sense, uh, a young uh, young, uh, minister, and also uh, um, Atal is very political, Uh, so, I mean, he's pretty skillful. He was a very good communicator. He's one of the most popular uh, government ministers. Uh, so that all those uh, all those um, mm. uh, are assets for 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 Macron and uh, and the relaunch of his presidency.
0: And is this being seen as Macron appointing a potential successor?
3: No, no. I mean, in the story of uh, French politics, I mean, uh, the prime minister never succeeded in becoming a, a president. So it's not the kind of job you take when you want to be a president. Of course, all prime ministers probably dream of becoming president. But no, it's it's, it's not, we are not completely in a monarchist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if I can just turn back uh, to Elizabeth Bourne, she was France's uh, second female prime minister, but the nation still has not had a female president. Why do you think France lags behind many European neighbours in this regard?
3: Oh, well, I mean, it's a cultural problem. You know, France lags in... Uh, uh, in um, women's equality with men in many other aspects you know like in uh, so i mean the, the gender question in france i, I would say it's still uh, mm, a mediterranean country that uh, that uh, is not in the forefront from uh, from many questions you know be it like me too be it like uh, violence against women this this we are, uh, france is not a country in the in the forefront for, for all these questions unfortunately
0: Florence, thank you. That was Florence Biederman in Paris. Now here's Christy O'Grady with the day's other news headlines.
2: Thanks, Vincent. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel for the fourth time in three months as Washington tries to avoid the Israel Hamas war becoming a wider regional conflict. Blinken earlier met with Turkey's president and Arab leaders, who he said had agreed to begin making plans for rebuilding Gaza once the war ends. Taiwan has issued a national emergency alert after China launched a satellite through its airspace. The island's foreign minister said the move will remind the people that there is a danger of war between Taiwan and China. And Poland has arrested a Belarusian woman on suspicion of spying. The country's internal security agency accused the woman of providing Belarusian security services with information about the diaspora in Poland. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent.
0: Thanks, Christy. Boeing is having a difficult start to 2024 with its share price tumbling after a section of the fuselage fell from the Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 on Friday. Now bolts in need of additional tightening have been found during inspections by fellow operator United Airlines. Earlier, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to Keith Tonkin, managing director of the Australian consultancy firm Aviation Projects.
1: It's very disappointing to think that these aircraft, which are pretty brand new, are coming out of the factory or very shortly after entering service and having situations like this, which if it's just a matter of tightening up some bolts will be very disappointing to Boeing. All we've heard so far is that United Airlines and Alaska Airlines have been carrying out the inspections that have been directed by the Federal Aviation Administration and that they've found loose hardware or otherwise characterized it as, as issues with installation, which we understand is that there are some loose bolts. And if that is the case, then it seems to be a relatively easy fix.
4: Okay, so this isn't a kind of terminal prognosis for this particular aircraft. You think it can
1: recover from this and fly again? Absolutely. It, it's something that the aircraft operators will be able to recover from. And if it's a simple fix, then yeah, they should be back in the air before we know it. The problem is that we've got a, a brand new aircraft that is being operated around the world with potentially systems or parts of the the aircraft that are not safe and sound for operation. That's the biggest concern. Whose responsibility is
4: it now then to fix these planes once the issue is identified? I mean, does Boeing do a recall of all 737 MAX 9s like you would expect if you bought a product in a store and it turned out to be faulty? Or is it down
1: to the airlines to rectify it? The airlines are carrying out the required instructions from the Federal Aviation Administration via the Emergency Airworthiness Directive. And that says that the aircraft have to be grounded until inspections are being carried out. And during the inspections, if they find a problem, they need to rectify that problem according to the instructions that have been provided, and then the aircraft can go flying again. So it's a relatively simple process, not necessarily unusual for aircraft to have some sort of problem that becomes subject to an airworthiness directive that needs to be reconciled before the aircraft can continue flying.
4: And this isn't the first time that Boeing have been scrutinised. There were a couple of fatal plane crashes in 2018 and 2019, uh, which killed hundreds of people. How has this latest incident possible? I mean, they must have come under pretty intense scrutiny after
1: those two incidents. They came under a lot of scrutiny after those two accidents and the the fleet was grounded for a long time and Boeing was penalised a lot of money as a result of it. This later situation is is not as problematic as aeroplanes being uncontrollable and crashing into the ground. This situation is relatively straightforward to fix and it should be fixed on a relatively small group of aircraft. I think there are something like 218 in the world at the moment. So it's a small fleet, a simple fix. They should be flying soon. But I suppose does this
4: raise any issues about... Boeing's internal scrutiny if it's happened multiple times now that they're putting out planes, they're selling planes that effectively aren't fit to fly?
1: Yeah, Boeing will be very disappointed with the situation, no doubt, because they will have been working hard to improve their systems and processes internally and deliver the quality product that we expect and, and the, the travelling public really needs to, to have some confidence in the aircraft and the fact that it's going to take off and land and get them safely to the other end. So Boeing will be working very hard to make sure this doesn't happen again. Could this do serious damage to their reputation going forward? I think their reputation is already damaged because of the two max eight accidents. And I'm just noticing that their share price is something like 8% down since the weekend. And that's probably uh, as much of a concern as the safety problems that they're encountering. And if someone's out in the market buying aeroplanes and they have a choice between a Boeing and something else, then they might be reconsidering that decision at the moment.
4: And you touched on this earlier, but how widely is this particular aircraft used? I mean, we've seen a fair bit of disruption with quite a lot of flights cancelled already uh, since the incident over the weekend.
1: Could there be more disruption as a result of this? Well, as I understand it, the fleet is grounded until the inspections have been carried out and the, the problems, if there are any, have been rectified. Across a fleet of 218 around the world, that's not significant. For Alaskan and United, which have quite a number of these aircraft, that'll be significant and it'll really disrupt their operations for a little while until those aircraft are back operating again.
4: Could this become a serious crisis for Boeing?
1: I think it'll be a very small blip in the history of Boeing.
4: And what about for the aviation industry as a whole? Will this have repercussions for how new aircraft are designed or tested, for
1: example? I think it'll it'll help to stimulate an increased focus on ensuring that the aeroplanes that are being manufactured and put together and operated, maintained in accordance with the very strict safety requirements that are applied all around the world.
4: And just finally, would you happily fly on a Boeing 737 MAX 9 right now?
1: Yes.
0: Keith Tonkin there, speaking to Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Well, this is The Briefing on Monocle Radio, coming to you live from Studio One at Midori House. I'm Vincent McAvinney. To the Indian Ocean now, where tensions are brewing between India and the Maldives. The island nation's president campaigned on an India-out message and has now visited China before India. Uh, New Delhi correspondent Lindy Prickett can tell us more. Uh, Firstly, what prompted President Mohamed Muzu to run on this platform?
5: Hi, Vincent. Well, um, it's it's an interesting story. It's not often that a world leader's snorkeling pictures and comments uh, about an island can make another island 750 kilometers away really upset. Um, but that is the state of politics here at the moment. Um, it it's interesting because. Um, this has resulted in a big big backlash um, and become a power play not just between India and the tiny maldivian nation but as you as you mentioned China being thrown into the mix as well um, it's no um, secret anybody who's whos studied any of the South Asian politics knows that for a long time China has been befriending a lot of India's neighbors uh, Sri Lanka is a very good example also south of India an island south of India and um, and and why and why wouldn't these countries that are small and geographically shadowed by India want to leverage all the kind of political might they can from um, India's uh, uh, one of India's uh, superpower enemies, we could say. So it has really resulted in quite a story here in India with a lot of celebrities weighing in and a whole big uh, campaign to stop traveling to the Maldives and now Maldivian people. Uh, uh, Politicians backtracking as well on comments that were made against India as they realized, well, a lot of their tourists, in fact, the number one tourist group, 200,000 Indians visit the Maldivian islands every year. So it has really turned into a story that goes beyond sun and sand.
0: And so just to unpack this, sorry, slightly. President Modi uh, had visited the Indian islands of Lakshadweep. uh, That was seen as a snub to the Maldives. Why was that? But also, what was the sort of rupture before that in the relationship with the Maldives that that led to this platform of wanting India out? Right.
5: So as you say, um, there was the the new President, Modi, did campaign on an India out campaign. policy and favored China in terms of a big superpower to sort of lean on. And that is because India has had a long relationship with the Maldives and has been able to do um, different geographical surveys in the Indian Ocean as well as um, have some military presence um, around there. And the latest government in the Maldives has said no, no, we we, we want India out and we are going to favor um, the Chinese instead. In fact they met in high-ranking Talks uh, talks with uh, Chinese officials and regional talks before they met with India. Um, the two president, uh, Prime Minister Modi and the and the Maldivian leader did meet on the sidelines of, of the Dubai COP twenty eight conference. And yet, as you say, when when Prime Minister Modi happened to visit uh, the island of Lakshwadi, the Indian island of Lakshwadi, and tweeted saying, "This is so pretty. More people should come here." Well. The Maldivians took that as a snub, and um, we now have a, a spat re- resulting between the two countries.
0: And you've touched on it, but what is it that Beijing can offer the Maldives over uh, what New Delhi can? Will there be sort of Belt and Road type initiative programs coming to the islands?
5: Well, when the maldives uh, sorry when when the Chinese were involved in a lot of projects in Sri Lanka you saw massive development happening and that's something that the Chinese government has been very good at in many different countries whether it's in in Africa or Pakistan or 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 the islands outside the in, in the Indian Ocean so I think it's that kind of development that definitely is a very big um appeal for a lot of these nations but also you know you it's it's understanding Understandable that small nations are going to leverage their geographical advantage um, and play major powers against each other. Um, that is the, the way of the world right now. And we can see that happening um, today in, with the Maldives. And However, just... as I say, there is a backlash <laughs> because they realize mm. their tourism is a big part of their story.
0: And just uh, finally, the Maldives are a Muslim nation. Although uh, Prime Minister uh, President Modi's track record on, on Muslim citizens in India isn't particularly great, China, though, has been accused of committing crimes against humanity and possible genocide against the Uyghurs and other mostly Muslim ethnic groups in Xinjiang. Is that not a problem for the president?
5: I think that's a really good point that you make, and I think a lot of a lot of different um, na- nations have to, to to weigh these things in in their in their hands and try and say, hmm, what's the lesser of, of 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 two presumed evils, as you say. There's a lot of there's a lot of presumptions, I think, on both sides. But it is interesting how many countries will do business with China and ignore all a lot of the accusations against it, what it does to its own Uyghur community. So I think sometimes you, you have nations who, who put the economy and um, development first and and hope that some of the nuances of, of the geopolitical, Uh, politics and religion are sort of lost in the the sidelines to the average citizen who might take offence to such uh, um, relationships. But right now, I think there's a tussle between what are we going to put first, our tourism or our geopolitics? And that's what we're seeing right now is there's a lot of um, backtracking
0: from the Mm. Maldivian politicians as well. Lindy Prickett, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Kim Jue ae has emerged as the likely heir to the North Korean supreme leadership, according to South Korea's spy agency. Her father, Kim Jong-un, has held the position since his own father died in 2011, but there have been persistent rumors of his ill health. Juai is only 10 years old, but has been making public appearances with her father since November 2022, which have been well documented and purposefully publicised by state media, leading to much speculation. Professor Gordon Flake is founding chief executive officer of the Perth US Asia Centre at the University of Western Australia. Professor Flake, how much do we know about Kim Juai and how she's being raised?
6: Uh, Very little, uh, as you mentioned, she was only introduced in public uh, in November of last year, uh, and she's continued to accompany her father at places where you wouldn't normally see uh, take your daughter to work workday kind of things, missile launches and the like. Um, we're not even 100 percent sure that her name is indeed A. You know, that reporting came from Dennis Rodman. Uh, the North Korean media have not referred to her specifically by name, uh, but it's quite clear this is a daughter of Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, the already the grandson of the founder of North Korea, and it is a clear attempt uh, to, you know, portray the ongoing familial line of the Kim, Kim, Kim family. I'm probably less willing uh, than many to, to say this is a clear attempt to establish a dynastic succession or to anoint here as a leader, it could just as well be uh, him trying to present a normal family image as the way royal families do around the globe. Um, uh, you know, again, 10 years old is still quite young in that, that process, and, and uh, there's a lot that remains to be seen in the weeks and months to come.
0: And Kim Jong-un famously spent time away outside the hermit country at a boarding school in Switzerland as a youngster. Do you think we're likely to see something like that again?
6: Uh, I would think not. Um, We're in a much more um, tense situation between North and South right now, and in North Korea's position in the world with his nuclear test and his missile test. And so the international sanctions regime against North Korea uh, and the intention on her is such that it's not possible. It was only possible for Kim Jong-un to go overseas because he was unknown. Uh, He had not been identified and known. He was, you know, the the functionally the illegitimate son of his father, Kim um, Jong-il, and not known in that regard. Uh, And so that was possible. but I I can't imagine that today.
0: And do we know how many children Kim Jong-un actually has uh, and why she might have been potentially chosen as the heir? You said you don't think she she is for certain. But I mean, does he only have daughters? Is that a factor in it? What's the thinking?
6: So, again, there's nothing confirmed on this. South Korean intelligence... Uh, reports, and in the North Korea watching community in South Korea believe that Kim Jong-un and his wife Yi Soju ju have, have uh, three children. And, and there's rumors that Kim Joo-ae actually even has an older brother. Uh, but there is some precedence in this. Um, um, uh, Kim Jong-un himself was the, the, the second uh, child uh, of Kim Jong-il and by all accounts, his older brother was not fit for leadership. Didn't have the 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 the, uh, the, the disposition, shall we say? Um, and so, again, pure speculation at this point. But there are rumors that there are at least two other siblings, and that she is not the oldest.
0: And the country has been struggling; it locked down incredibly hard during the pandemic years. What's the latest on the situation uh, there?
6: Well, they are increasingly dependent upon China, Um, and in in contrast to, say, a decade ago when China uh, and then Russia were reluctant to help North Korea, given North Korea's flaunting of international norms, uh, given the deterioration of the international system um, and the bifurcation of that system into opposing camps, Uh, China and Russia both are increasingly supportive of North Korea. So absolutely, their economy is not good. Uh, They remain quite isolated, at least from their Western world. But as we see uh, in the news more broadly, uh, they're doing a kind of a robust arms business in in flouting international sanctions with Russia. uh, And China itself uh, is no longer willing to implement uh, the UN Security Council sanctions resolutions it previously signed on to against North Korea. So, uh, again, pretty closed off, we don't know exactly. We- can't presume things are booming, but mm. they've got some pretty strong patrons.
0: And finally, just briefly, there have been persistent rumours about Kim Jong-un's health over the years, particularly related to his diet and his weight. Do you think that this could potentially be reflective, promoting his daughter like this might be because there is something in that and he thinks he needs to get on with it
6: quickly, or is, is it something else? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to go that far. After all, she's only 10 right? Uh, And and most recently, uh, the South Korean Intelligence community seems to assess that his health is is relatively robust. And so 2014, 2016, 2021, there have been rumors of his demise. Uh, But I've been watching North Korea for the better part of 35 years, and only twice have rumors of the demise of a North Korean leader been true. And that's despite hundreds of such reports, right? So, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I think this is, 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 a part of a longer term process uh, that we might find it interesting because of the the absurdities of the North Korean state, but it's an attempt to to present himself and his family and the continuous bloodline of the Kim family as something that is normal. So I don't know that it's an urgent thing. I think it's much more of a long term, long game process. Mm.
0: Professor Gordon Flake in Perth, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To Italy now and our associate producer Isabella Jewell is with me in the studio to review what's making the papers in the country today uh, and kicking us off there's a row over a gathering of fascists in Rome.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is the story that's really been dominating all of the Italian national papers and papers internationally as well. Basically, what happened was on Sunday in Rome, a huge gathering of hundreds of neo-fascist men uh, gathered outside the former headquarters of the Italian social movement, which was a neo-fascist party founded after the Second World War, which has subsequently developed into the party of the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Malone, the Fratelli Italia, brothers of Italy. Um, and they had gathered to commemorate the 46th anniversary of the killing of militants from the party's old youth wing by leftist militants. Now, videos have gone viral of this crowd shouting neo-fascist slogans and performing stiff-armed salutes and it's really just caused shock across society in Italy.
0: And what's the reaction of the government been?
2: So the government's reaction has been quite muted, to be honest. Um, now, the opposition has called for Giorgio Maloney to ban neo-fascist groups. And this morning, the Senate president, Ignacio La Russa, basically distanced the party from uh, Sunday's gathering, but said that performing the gesture of a fascist salute isn't necessarily a crime, which really is a point of contest- uh, contention in Italy. Um, now, what complicates this further is obviously, like I mentioned, the leading party is in some ways related to this neo-fascist group that the gathering of men were commemorating. But also La Russa is actually the first politician with a neo-fascist background to hold the position of president of the Senate, which is the second most important office in Italy.
0: And turning to the Vatican now, Catholic Church uh, officials, or one official, says that priests should allow to be married.
2: Yeah, so this is a story from Catholic News Agency, one of my favourite um, daily websites to check, of course. And the Archbishop of Malta, Charles Shiluna, who is also a Vatican official, basically calls uh, for Rome to rethink changing the requirement uh, for priests to be celibate. So he basically uh, came out with uh, the suggestion that we should be looking towards the Eastern churches, which do allow married men to be ordained into the priesthood, as it would be a way to stop the Catholic Church from hemorrhaging fine young men who would make good priests, as well as using losing active priests who then fall in love and leave the church in order to pursue marriage. Because
0: mm, they do have a bit of a demographic crisis when it comes to, police, uh, to priests, don't they?
2: Yeah, exactly. But the Pope, you know, Pope Francis has argued that um, counter to this argument that, you know, by encouraging priests and allowing them to get married, you know, that you'd stop this flow of priests leaving um, the Vatican. What's actually interesting is if you look towards the lutheran church where priests are allowed to get married, there's still this kind of demographic flow of people leaving the church and it hasn't seemed to encourage people back so the pope argues this wouldn't make much of a, of a change and he seems pretty set in his stance that he doesn't want to introduce this new law but it has come up time and time again and i'm sure it will at the next meeting of the synod on synodality which happens
0: i think every october mm-hmm. uh, and just finally uh, there's a show kicking off in florence today
2: Indeed, it's the Pitti Wormo trade show. So that's just kicked off today and will be running for the next three days until the, 20th of, uh, the 12th of January. And it's basically a menswear trade show that all Monocle listeners know very well. It takes place bi-yearly in Florence and has been running since the 70s. And it basically serves as a teaser of the month to come in the year of menswear. Uh, they'll be inviting a combination of designers, industry professionals who all flock to the northern Italian city to celebrate menswear.
0: Mm. And uh, will we be covering it over the next few days? We
2: will indeed. Monocle's design editor or fashion editor, sorry, Natalie Tiodosi, will be in Florence to cover all of the latest developments and to talk about all the various events that will be taking place in the city over the next three days. There's some really exciting names who will be there, including a guest designer called Luca Magliano, who's from Bologna. He's basically really interested in a more subversive take on menswear with lots of layers and loose-fitting garments. And there's also a British designer who's going to be there, Stephen Stoke Daily who's basically trying to challenge the gender norms of menswear and also uh, represent working class more in this form of fashion which is obviously something that's often overlooked. So make sure that you do tune in to The Globalist on Thursday morning. You'll be hearing from Natalie there and if you receive our Monocle newsletter, the Monocle Minute, you can find out all the latest tips if you're in Italy this week.
0: Mm, and you can subscribe to that at monocle.com forward slash minute. Isabella many thanks for joining us and and that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady who is also our studio manager. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.